This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. This is episode five, and today's topic is Reflections on a River Runs Through It. Shortly after I moved to Helena, Montana in 1987, I was browsing in a little bookstore in Last Chance Gulch and I purchased a copy of A River Runs Through It and Other Stories by Norman McLean. I had heard about it and I was trying to read Montana authors and Montana history at the time. So this was actually before the movie popularized the story. The first paragraph captivated me and I found that the book really touched me deeply. First and last lines of the book or the novella are really classic. The first line is, in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. What an awesome f- opening yeah, line really for, a, for a novella. And the last line is, is, in, is particularly uh, poignant. Um, I am haunted by waters. Mm, that's great stuff. You know, for many older fly fishers, the story and the movie capture the pathos of the sport. Yet there may be many younger and perhaps older fly fishers who have never read the novella or have not seen the movie that was released in 1992 and directed by Robert Redford. Uh, There really is a lot of intrigue surrounding this book, but one little item is rather surprising, and that is that McLean, who grew up in Missoula, Montana, and then taught English for years at the University of Chicago, uh, never wrote this book until he was in his 70s. That's right. It's amazing. His two children, Gene and John, talked him into it. They wanted him to write down some of the stories he told them when they were young. So when he retired, he wrote the book. Yeah, that's right. And what we want to do today is to share some of our reflections on the book. But in case some of you who are listening haven't read it, here's a brief synopsis. While fly fishing plays a central role, it's really a story about a family. Uh, Norman, the writer, uh, his brother Paul, uh, their parents, and a few colorful characters along the way. Uh, The father of Norman and Paul is a Presbyterian minister in Missoula, Montana, and it takes place in the early 20th century. Isn't that right, Dave? The setting is in the early 1900s. Norman was born in 1902, and Paul was born in... 1906. So the heart of the story really takes place in the in the 20s and the 30s. I suppose you could call the story semi-autobiographical. Uh, the narrator of the book is is the older brother Norman. So the story is really written and seen through his eyes. Yeah, that's right. It's based on Norman's experiences growing up. Although he said that when any teller of stories tries to put them down in writing, the act of writing changes them greatly. But other than a few details here and there, it is a true story. So, Dave, how about a quick rundown of the storyline? All right. The two brothers, Norman and Paul, grow up in a home where their minister father tries to instill in them faith and fly fishing. I think he does a much better job with fly fishing than he does faith. Um, Neither seems to adopt the Christian faith of their father, certainly not Paul anyway. Uh, but both adopt his love of fly fishing. And in the story, we watch them grow up. They fight like brothers. Norman goes off to college and gets married. Paul has this really deep and persistent wild streak, which is his, you know, his undoing in the end. Right. The book ends by narrating their final time fly fish, fishing the Black 
uh, excuse me, the big Blackfoot River. And shortly after that, they get word that Paul was beaten to death by the butt of a revolver and his body was dumped into an alley. So the heart of the relationship, or excuse me, the heart of the narrative is about the relationship uh, of the two brothers. And I just reread the story, and but I read it again. And just last night, I finished it and I wept. I was sitting at, at the airport in Denver. <laughs> and the last scene uh, where they're fly fishing for the last time, and the narrator... Um, which is Norman, kind of gives you a clue that this is the last time through different ways he talks about it. He actually says it in different parts of the narrative. But the word of the death of, of Paul and the final ending to the story it was just crushing. And oh, it was, it's moving. It's it? so moving. Very sad. Well, I think it's fair to say this book has captivated us, that we both resonate with it. Part of that is due to the prominence of fly fishing. I mean, we're two guys who love the fly fish, so... Any story that involves fly fishing is going to get our attention, but there really is more to it than that. There are some themes in the story that resonate with us. One of them is how time spent on the river evokes memories and really touches a deep place in our souls. Let me read the last couple of paragraphs of the novella. So this is how McLean ends his book. Of course, now I am too old to be much of a fisherman, and now, of course, I usually fish the big waters alone, although some friends think I shouldn't. Like many fly fishermen in western Montana, where the summer days are almost arctic in length, I often do not start fishing until the cool of the evening. Then in the arctic half-light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise." Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. Have you had an experience like that on the water? I mean, not so much a a great day in terms of catching fish. I mean, maybe you did, maybe you didn't that day, but have you had a day or a moment which has touched something deep within you, a moment that might cause you to say, I'm haunted by waters? Well, I actually have a hilarious story um, about the phrase haunted by waters. It's a phrase probably my brother uses and over and over again as he recounts how I treated him once. Um, he, I think he's haunted by my cold-hearted nature and complete lack of sympathy. Um, I took Matt <laughs> to fish uh, Elk Creek in Augusta, Montana. We fished that early on. Oh, yeah. Great fish. It's an unbelievable stream that comes out of, I think it's the Scapegoat Wilderness. Yes. Uh-huh. And we used to camp uh, at the head of the Scapegoat. Uh, we're actually at the trailhead, right, where it comes out right. of the Scapegoat. In yep. fact, we'll tell more about that later. But um, so we were fishing on Flossie's place, and Flossie was this older lady. In fact, she had to be 80 or 90 back in 1980. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I took my brother back probably in 84, 85. And uh, so we were fishing those beaver dams, and they were just unbelievable beaver dams. The, the creek itself was not that big, but some of these dams were just um, were deep, they were um, cold, and, and so we would fish these dams, and there were some terrific, we caught some huge browns out of there. So one, one, one afternoon, 
Um, and my brother is probably 16 at the time. I am probably 23. We were about, he's about seven years younger than I am. And um, so one afternoon, he was trying to scoot by me. So we were alternating <laughs> holes, but he was trying to get ahead of me to this really one great beaver dam. And so as he was scrambling to get up the base of this really well-engineered beaver dam by the beavers, um, he fell and he slipped on the sticks and the brush at the base. And he and one of these sharp sticks gashed his leg. Ugh. And the, the blood began pumping out. I did not miss a beat. I simply walked by him to the next beaver dam and said, greedy, greedy, greedy. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, he reminds me of my great warmth and great oh, sympathy. What a big brother you were, huh? <laughs> but on a, on a uh, so he's haunted by my, uh, you know, haunted by my cold-hearted yeah, I guess uh, so. nature. But one thing I do resonate with the book is the great affection that the brothers have for each other. And I really have that for my brother. Um, He's more than a friend. He's more than a brother. There's this deep relationship. And a lot of that has come through the years, not so much by fly fishing, although we have done that together. Um, A lot of it has come through hunting and our great tradition that we have of going back to North Dakota or South Dakota every fall to hunt. And um, it's really, really... The book... Uh, is so poignant because of that relationship and it's one of the deep things that I resonate with the book. So Steve, how about you? Do you remember like a a poignant moment like the one described at the end of the book? Yeah, uh, I I remember a gorgeous April day. It was 60 degrees. I was living in uh, Montana in the Gallatin Valley north of Bozeman and fortunately it was Monday, my day off. Unfortunately, I was summoned for jury duty I remember it was a felony drug case in U.S. District Court, and I figured that I wouldn't get chosen for the jury. I mean, I'm a pastor, and what defense attorney wants a judgmental pastor, right? Well, that didn't work. I got chosen, and the judge dismissed us that day at 3 p.m., and he said, you need to report at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Well, I I tried not to run out of the Law and Justice Center in Bozeman uh, too fast. I figured that wouldn't look very good. They think I'm trying to escape. Uh, But I I drove as quickly as I could over the Bozeman Pass, the Livingston, and up Paradise Valley, and and I fished a stretch of the Yellowstone just below the Pine Creek Bridge, and I caught a few fish on a red fox squirrel nymph that I tied. Uh, It was was right below this cliff section, uh, and finally I I saw a pot of rainbows. They were rising in, in the foam, just kind of in this seam right next to a a really, really strong run, and they were feeding on blue-wing olives, and uh, that kind of a hatch can happen uh, late afternoon on sunny days, and it was about six o'clock, you know, at the time, and and I started fishing that little uh, section of foam, that, that run, and I must have landed about four rainbows. They were all 16 to 18 inches, and they were fighters, and I'm I'm fighting them as the sun set over the mountains to the west. I mean, there was not a, a cloud in the sky, and there was no one on the river. I think when I got there, maybe one drift boat passed, but by then, everybody had gone home. And I'll never forget the red glow on the snow-covered Absorky Beartooth to the east above the cliffs behind me. And, and I remember looking up there, thinking of bow-hunting elk with my dad in those mountains, and I... I thought of my grandparents who were buried in a little settler cemetery on a ridge beneath those peaks, and I I thought of the beauty I was seeing and living, and I thought of my family an hour west 
who probably needed me home. And then I felt the moment slipping away. But you know, there was a, there was a peacefulness, there was a feeling of satisfaction, kind of mingled with this, this poignant ache or this sadness. It's what a writer named C.S. Lewis calls the inconsolable longing. Uh, he wrote a rather remarkable essay called The Weight of Glory, and in his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about how uh, we have some experiences that provide the scent of a flower I have not found, the echo of a tune I have not heard, the news from a country I have never yet uh, visited. So to me, that was one of those days where I was haunted by waters, not in a dark, brooding sense, but kind of in that that longing, that, uh, man, this is just a wonderful moment, but the moment's going to slip away. But there's another theme I'd like to explore for a few minutes, and it's really the big idea of the book. It surfaces a couple times right near the end of the story. After Norman finds out about his brother's death and drives to his parents' home to tell them the tragic news, and and, and that's, the, that's the part of the story you were talking about, Dave, the yeah. one that made you tear up. Uh, Norman says about his mother, she was never to ask me a question about the man she loved most and understood least. Perhaps she knew enough to know that for her it was enough to have loved him. End of quote. And then later, in a conversation with his father, his father wants to know if Norman has told him everything about Paul's death. Norman says, everything. And his father replies, it's not much, is it? To which Norman replies, no, but you can love completely without complete understanding. And then his father responds, that I have known and preached. Well, that's, in my opinion, the big idea of the book. I agree. Um, You can love completely without complete understanding i think of the men in my life you know my brother who is i'm so close to and my father um that has to be true and i think it's deeply true i agree Uh, norman quotes his father once more at the end of the book it is those we live with and love and should know who elude us wow (laughs) that is so powerful really is so steve as you think about this theme in the story you know, is there anything about it that connects with you, or what is what about it connects with you? You know, it really does. I, I remember a good friend with whom I used to fish when we lived in Helena, Montana, about 25 years ago. I'm going to call him Jim. Uh, he was a guy with an enormous smile who really loved life, and we fly fished a few times on some of the creeks just over McDonald Pass, uh, west of Helena, but a year ago, he took his life, and it turns out that he had battled depression for years. And I was his pastor and his friend, and I, I just didn't realize that his emotional anguish cut that deep. I, I thought I understood him, but I didn't. And yet, as the elder McLean said, it is those we live with and love and should know who elude us. So, Dave, how about you? Uh, when you hear Norman say, you can love completely without complete understanding, have you experienced that? I mean, has fly fishing had anything to do with that? When I think of fly fishing, I also think of hunting, I think, because they're both outdoor sports. They're right. both really important parts of my life. And um, I would say that the outdoors, whether it's fishing or hunting, have been a way for my father and me to stay connected 
during many years, especially during my teenage years and even to, into my 20s, when we did not understand or even like each other. Yeah. Um, today, my father is 80, and we have what I would describe as a very tender uh, father-son relationship. I call him yeah. every day um, or most every day. In He's fact, a great man. He, he really, really is. is. A great man. I think he, you know, at Love 80, he has yeah. more energy than I do. <laughs> um, I just came back from taking my youngest son to North Dakota to uh, fish for Northern Pike with him. You know, we caught a bunch. I think we caught 14. <laughs> and we also caught a bunch of ticks that day. Yeah. In fact, I think I pulled off 20 ticks uh, after our afternoon, uh, fishing for Northern, but, but the discipline of fishing and hunting together enabled us to be together and learn to love each other when we did not understand each other. And to me, the outdoors have been such a great gift to our family. And I have brought my boys into that and my, mostly my boys, uh, I've taken my daughter out as well, but she does not participate, uh, in either hunting or fishing. But the, the outdoors for my two sons have enabled us, as we've also gone through those hard years, um, it's been this discipline um, that has enabled us to love each other even while not completely understanding each other. Yeah, that's good stuff, Dave. Well, this has been a little bit heavier today than, than usual, and that's okay. But on our next podcast, we're going to lighten it up a bit. We're going to have a conversation with fly fishing legend Gary Borger. Yes, Gary Borger. And we're going to talk to him about the making of A River Runs Through It. You see, Gary was the consultant for the fly fishing aspects of that movie. And that's going to be good. I can't wait for that. In fact, his son, Jason, did all the shadow casting yeah, he did. for the father, Brad Pitt, and Norman yeah. in, in, that, in that movie. I cannot wait for that conversation. And in the meantime, uh, as always, uh, we would love to hear from you. So go to twoguysinariver.com and post a poignant moment on the river. Not necessarily the time when you caught 30 fish in a day, but maybe tell us about a time when your time on the river uh, touched something deep or deeper in your soul. Yeah. Or tell us about someone you learned to love completely, even though you didn't completely understand them. And tell us how fly fishing p played a role in that. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And also, if you are listening to this podcast and not subscribed to either iTunes or Stitcher, uh, be sure to subscribe um, if, you are, um, if you're on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Or if you're on Android, uh, go to Stitcher and subscribe. That will get you the podcast every uh, time that we post one and, and get it to you on time. Yeah, please do that. All right, that's all for today. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing.